0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Jamin Creed Rowan, Assistant Professor of English and American Studies at Brigham Young University. His book, The Sociable City in American Intellectual Tradition, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, offers a history of how American intellectuals and planners thought about urban relationships shaping modern cities. He traces how cities' physical landscape changed as ideas about the nature of their social life were reconceived. Beginning with Frederick Law Olson in the 19th century, who expressed anxiety over the erosion of social sympathy, to the progressive era's deployment of the family ideal for urban friendships, to mid-century models that saw these relationships as part of, and analogous to, an ecological system. Along the way, he examines the thought of Jane Addams, W.E.B. Du Bois, the journalist at The New Yorker, Rachel Carson, and Jane Jacobs, and the disruptive force of the urban renewal projects. Rowan provides the reader with a new way to value sociable fellow feelings in the midst of the diversity and rapid changes of today's city. Here's my conversation with Jamin Creed Rowan. Now let me introduce you to the author, Jamin Creed Rowan. Jamin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience Before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write *The Sociable City*.
1: Of course, Uh, I'm currently an associate professor at Brigham Young University, and have been teaching here for uh, seven years. Prior to that, I I taught at Wake Forest University for a couple years and did my graduate work at at Boston College. Uh, It was while I was living in Boston. Uh, But I'd moved to Boston. I grew up in in California in a Central Valley town called Merced uh, in California in the 80s and 90s, and really had I'd grown up going into the city occasionally, going to San Francisco um, mostly, uh, but really only going in for I don't know sporting events or other other kinds of shows. And it was of course during the 80s where, in, in many ways of anti-urbanism was uh, at its at its height uh, and so i grew up in this culture that was uh, extremely fearful of cities um uh, extremely suspicious about the kinds of interactions that took place in took place uh, in cities and um it was only when i moved to boston and uh in the late kind of at the very end of the 1990s and and really the first decade of the 21st century um that i as i interacted with people in the city uh i i felt a kind of connection a, a kind of affection for uh people in the city that i just didn't have the language to uh articulate um you know my my culture in other words hadn't given me the words or the concepts with which i could make sense of the types of uh, emotions and affections that i felt for people with whom i rode the subway people i uh, encountered on the on the sidewalk and so really the project grew out of that i i wanted to try to make sense of i wanted to try to figure out if there if others had developed this language for uh for trying to make sense of of cities uh, and, and more specifically the kinds of interactions and affiliations that people uh formed in in cities because i again my culture i didn't feel had given me the words with which i with which i could do that
0: now what is it about urban environments that are different, let's say, from a small town or rural mm-hmm. America. What what makes you unique, and why is there a problem with the? What was there a problem with language regarding what was happening socially right. in a city? Can you can you give me a, a very general question because I've got more specific ones later?
1: Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, I, and I talk about this in in the book a little bit. The transition. Uh, from a, a language or a discourse of sympathy to one of sociability, which is where the, the title of the book comes from, The Sociable City. I think that the language of sympathy, although it might not kind of accurately uh, account for the kinds of relationships that um, occur in smaller towns, uh, I think that for the most part we still in, in um, smaller towns insist upon the logic of, of uh, sympathy. Uh, the language and logic of sympathy. But in the city, because you're encountering so many strangers, uh, people that you can't uh, pretend to have, in my experience, any kind of intimacy with, you know, you'd see people on the subway and never see them again. You would, you know, you might run into people uh, in your kind of urban neighborhood uh, on the sidewalk more than once. But even then, you don't, you might not necessarily feel any kind of friendship. Or kinship for them, but but you might still feel affection for them, even there, even though they're strangers. And so I think the city really, really forced me to confront uh, the inadequacy of the language of sympathy, which ha- which I had used growing up in a smaller town uh, in the Central Valley of California to make sense of my relationships there. Right, I, I was was easy to th- imagine that I could be friends with um, most of the people that I encountered. Whereas in the city i you know I just could no longer pretend that because of the sheer number of strangers, the lack of repeated contact, and yet again, I still felt some kind of connection uh some kind of affection for people that I knew I would never see again i felt I felt connected to them uh in some way because we shared the same space, we used the same paths uh, and so yeah I, th- I think that that's what what really makes the language of uh and logic of sympathy um inadequate for for urban relationships is just the the sheer number of strangers that one encounters
0: most most people today now in america i think it's over 50 percent for sure uh i don't know if it's up to 60 percent of americans live in urban environments right and most of the people that we encounter in our life that we see are going to be strangers Right. Uh, yeah. you know, most of the, most of us are not dealing, uh, we, we, in a day, you're gonna see more strangers and you're gonna see people that you're intimately engaged with. Right. So, I thought all this was very interesting, but I wanna go back to, in your book, at the beginning of the book, you talk about Frederick Law Olson and how, uh, can you talk about who he was? Well, I know he was an architect. When, uh, yeah. How did he view cities and how did he try, who was he and what was he trying to do? He had right. a his particular view about cities.
1: Right, yeah. So Frederick Law Olmsted is really the the father of landscape architecture in our in our country. Um, you know, most people will be familiar, if not with him, with his kind of product through through places like Central Park uh, in New York City. Um, he also designed the Emerald Necklace uh, in Boston, so places like uh, you know the the Fenway and and areas like that. I mean, he he designed parks all over. Uh, the country, and then his uh, his son kind of inherited the business and and continued to to kind of carry out his father's vision, and they just uh, again like I said that uh, you know that their reach extended throughout the country not it wasn't just limited to the northeast or northeastern cities um, really they planned uh, an amazing number of parks, and um, I'm interested in Frederick Law Olmsted in in this book primarily because of the way that he thought about. Uh, urban relationships and the way that he responded to those relationships by altering the urban environment. So, uh, uh, Frederick Olmsted was really suspicious about or anxious about the quality of, uh, interaction, uh, the quality of the interactions, uh, among urbanites on, uh, congested urban streets. So, of course, he was, uh, you know, working in the mid 19th century, uh, cities were still, uh primarily um walking cities you know people got around um the city to and from work uh on foot and so uh, as as city sidewalks became more and more congested he worried more and more about uh, the ability of of city dwellers to uh, engage sympathetically with each other he he worried that instead of, of engaging sympathetically with each other they would be really cautious of each other kind of judging or, or sizing up you know other pedestrians uh, in relationship to themselves in terms of the danger or the, the obstacle that they, they um, posed uh, to them. And so this made him really anxious. He, he was worried about the social consequences of those congested sidewalks. So he built parks, places like Central Park, uh, Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Uh, he built those parks as an attempt to give urbanites, or basically to remove urbanites from the streets. From these congested streets and place them in much less congested spaces, where they could continue, uh, or they could re- return to engaging with each other uh, in sympathetic ways, where, where where people could have opportunities to form those kind of gentler, more intimate uh, feelings for one another, those connections for one another. And it's you know if you if you walk through Central Park. You know, one of the, the designs that you'll notice is kind of lots of nooks, secluded nooks and, and crannies where, you know, families or small gatherings could kind of uh, get away from the street, get away from even other people in the park and um, uh, have their, uh, you know, engage with each other in these kind of intimate and, and sympathetic ways. And so he was, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, his parks, although they're public, of course. You know, it's, it might be helpful to think of them really more as an extension of, say, the parlor or you know some kind of uh, domestic space is how he is how he designed them.
0: Because when we think about uh, Central Park, most of us think in terms of nature, of him wanting uh-huh. to bring nature to the city and the importance of nature for a lot of different reasons. But you're putting focus on the sociability factor and what you know what social relationships are occurring yeah. in the park. Now, what did he yeah. mean by symphony, sympathy? Because one of the things that uh, you talk about in your book is familial intimacy, the idea that mm-hmm. the family and the kinds of relationships that have happened in the family was sort of the idealized yeah. standard yeah. for how we should all be interacting with each other
1: right. yeah, and and that's you know that grows out of of the culture of the eighteenth and nineteenth century, where again, this idea of sympathy became the gold standard by which every relationship would be measured. And of course, as you just said, uh, sympathy in the 18th and 19th centuries signified these kinds of intimate, but familial kinship um, kinds of, of relationships, and lots of social thinkers like uh, Olmsted really thought that it was possible for uh, that that kind of uh, intimacy to be reproduced among um, people that weren't related by by, fam- by family ties or, or, or through kinship, but they they wanted. Uh, people to feel as if they were family, and you know. So, example for example, if you think about the uh, abolitionist movement uh, of the mid nineteenth century, this is the model upon which they operated. That they were trying to get uh, you know white Northerners to feel the kinds of feelings for um, southern slaves um, that that mothers and children had for each other. So, you'll often see in, in uh, texts like. Um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, kind of the the dramatization of um, you know a, a mother child relationship that is kind of threatened or severed in attempt in an attempt to get white northern mothers to feel for uh, black southern slave mothers that kind of intimate bond of, of kind of mother to child or mother to mother you know how it feels uh, to be that
0: well what's interesting about the whole uh, whole concept of sympathy here is that we think about it even very differently. Even the most sophisticated of us who talk about sympathy in history and being sympathetic to our subjects, it's very different from what you're talking about. We don't, the idea that you would think that every relationship was to, you know, to mimic or some way reflect familial Mm -hmm. intimacy is rather strange to us. Now, this brings another point, the whole idea that in the 19th century cities were, this is the first time in the 19th century we begin to delineate uh, private space from private space. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the medieval city, how the medi- medieval cities, uh, that wasn't such a strong uh, uh, line there. You know, this, mm-hmm. the private spaces opened up to public spaces. Right. And so uh, can, can you talk a little bit about how we define public and private
1: spaces, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. There, there certainly was um, a contest, especially in the uh, not contest, but there was contestation over um, that delineation between private and public spaces within the city. Uh, I think, really, uh, in as industrialization started to reshape the city. So, uh, you know, industrial industrialization. Was seen as a potential threat to domestic values, um, domestic relationships, and so you have in the in the again the second half of the 19th century a real uh, a real attempt, a real focus to preserve these private spaces and the and the values, the kind of morals that those domestic spaces were seen to uh, to um, uh, shelter. Um, those became increasingly closed off to uh, there was an attempt to, to increasingly close those off to the kind of public industrial space that was seen as a uh, a much more masculine a much uh, less kind of morally clear or ethical uh, business practices, and so you had the the space that say you know people working in the industrial sphere would return to. To kind of recuperate in the in the domestic space, regain their uh, moral values or reaffirm from their moral values before they headed out again to work, and and then came back. And and so I think it's really the the industrial city where we see that that real uh, kind of marked delineation between the public and the private sphere.
0: Right, but at the same time that you've got these uh, social thinkers who are wanting to make that public space in a way because that private. Uh, public-private division was very gendered, and right. it's like these uh, social thinkers are trying to make the, the street, the public area, more feminine in a way. It's rather strange. Right. Okay, so let me yeah, go... You, you,
1: you certainly <laughs> had movements, um, kind of the metropolitan housekeeping movement, where, yeah, it's, it's this uh, kind of attempt of, of kind of women to tame the streets, in a sense, or to take care of, of the streets. And yeah, so there, there there is lots of interesting ways in which those kind of the gendering of the of the public and the private kind of bleed into each other or break down in some way.
0: Okay, now we get to the to the progressive era, and you talk about uh, the progressives, that, particularly the people who were involved in these, uh, like Hull House, uh, these, uh, uh, yeah, settlement houses. Settlement, yeah, settlement houses. Yes. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what was the concern of progressive? era intellectuals, particularly the ones that were involved in settlement houses, regarding uh, the city and what they were trying to do with those mm-hmm. relationships.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the settlement house movement grew out of um, the concern for the, the just the masses of, of immigrants that were coming into uh, U.S. cities at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, early stages of the 20th century. And so settlement house workers – Uh, saw a need to help these immigrants um, uh, make their homes in in these new cities uh, to assimilate, to uh, uh, receive social services, and so forth. I'm most interested in the Settlement House uh, movement for the way that it tried to reframe um, the 19th century version of thinking about urban relationships. And they uh, were really interested in, um, I think, pushing – Sympathy, um, pushing the the way that people traditionally thought of sympathetic relationships beyond where people traditionally thought it, how people had traditionally thought about sympathetic relationships. They were interested in, um, they were interested in, uh, the kind of less, um, intimate relationships. You know, they acknowledged, uh, sympathy's traditional inadequacy. For accounting for these relationships and they wanted to push sympathy into what Jane Adams describes as new channels uh, right, we need to discover our new uh, new channels for sympathy to flow we need to think about what she described as a cosmopolitan affection a term that I really like um, you know I'm really interested in the way that they um, really try to account for the wide the wider variety of relationships that people formed in cities and they uh, in particular, were forming the, these relationships as so they interacted with these immigrant communities and and, and ev- individuals in the public sphere
0: It's almost like what I noticed because of the structures of these uh physical houses, these settlement houses uh, they sort of expanded the walls of the settlement house to almost in- allow for more people to come in yeah. to the home yeah semi private these, yeah, there was places, a, these places that were, not, that were not necessarily public spaces; they weren't private spaces. There were these intermediate. Yeah. I think that was very interesting. Talk about yeah. that and how they did that.
1: Yeah. So I mean, whole house is, is the most famous settlement house, but it's a really good example of this of this um, use of space that you're talking about. So, despite the name house. These houses, oftentimes, uh, uh, these settlement homes, oftentimes started out as individual homes, but then they they literally spatially expanded to cover, in the case of settlement house, you know, an entire city block, uh, nearly. And uh, the the settlement home would include um, a cafe or a a, a playground, um, spaces for theater productions, um, spaces for. All sorts of clubs uh, uh, to form, right? So um, these these spaces that were, you know, a had been traditionally or in the past domestic uh, and private were now these kind of semi-public spaces, or even sometimes they would operate in the within the same day as as private and public, right? A a dining room could be, a, you know, in the morning private, but later on be transformed in some way through the rearrangement of chairs or um, uh, other furniture would become public or semi-public spaces, um, where again people could have uh, the the settlement house workers could engage with people from the street in 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 ways that were uh, not always carefully plotted out and planned out, and you know there's, there's this chance to really you know, expand the type of affection uh, that that um, they had for for one another.
0: And they kind of began to use term friend.
1: Yes, yes. So friend became uh, one of the key terms to signify that relationship as the settlement house moved on, moved on or kind of progressed. In the early stages of the settlement house movement, kind of this idea of brotherhood was the key term uh, that they tried to use. But they, they quickly realized that, you know what, we're not after recreating a kind of intimate familial relationship with these uh, immigrant uh, neighbors of ours, um, uh, something else like friendship actually better, better captures the type of relationship that we are, are trying to cultivate and and are cultivating as we interact with people in these semi-public spaces of the, of the settlement house and, and as they would enter into uh, the homes of the immigrant um, families that live nearby.
0: Okay, how did this, uh, one thing that you talk about in your book is the relationship of these settlement houses to the issue of race. Yeah. And how they negotiated or did not negotiate that. And then you bring in W.E.B. Du Bois and his view about, uh, he illuminated structural racism. That Mm -hmm. these races are not going to mix if they're structurally sort of segregated in some way. They're yeah. not naturally coming together.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there there have been a lot of legitimate criticisms of the settlement movement's um, inability to uh, uh, cross racial lines. That, that a lot of settlement houses were set up in neighborhoods that were predominantly uh, full of European immigrants and. Uh, there, there's, again, the people document, um, accurately the, the ways in which settlement, the, many settlement house movements turn their back to, um, the African American communities, uh, in the cities in which they were situated. But, nevertheless, Du Bois, I think, really saw the potential for the settlement movement to overcome, uh, this racial divide because of its emphasis, um, uh, on spatial proximity, you know, one of the one of the core values of the settlement movement was daily contact. And this idea of this spatial, you know, uh, you know, having having an, uh, a group of upper class white people uh, move into a, a space of lower class immigrant people and then having daily contact with them. He found that kind of uh that that emphasis upon daily contact really valuable and and he um you know one of the one in the early stages of his career as a sociologist he lived and worked in a a settlement house in philadelphia and uh really saw i think the possibility for racial integration through the settlement houses um social and spatial ideals and so he he used what we might describe as the the settlement houses social strategies spatial strategies to uh, try to uh, propose a way for um, kind of broader racial um, integration, uh, uh, broader attempts um, to kind of fulfill the dreams and ambitions of Reconstruction um, uh, in, a, in a kind of post-Reconstruction era.
0: Okay. Now, after after this, you, you go into the whole interwar years and the New Deal urbanism. Where sympathy uh, contracted, right? Well, the idea, well, the, the progressives tried to expand it, but then it contracted. Right. But We're still using the family, the family ideal as sort of the baseline. Right. Okay. So,
1: yeah. uh,
0: How was that? Talk about what, how, how there was a contraction, and how this was reflected in the built environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, exactly as you said, I mean, I think that what this, what I see the settlement house doing is trying to push and expand uh, the conceptual possibilities of sympathy. They, they wanted sympathy to be a concept that could account for uh, a broader range of uh, fellow feeling among city dwellers. And I think, again, I, I really liked what they were what they were doing, I thought it was a, a you know a, a brave effort, so to speak. But in the 1920s and 30s, as the city becomes as the city faces a different set of challenges, among which were uh, kind of crumbling infrastructure and unaffordable housing. Um, these were seen primarily, or, or among other threats that that crumbling infrastructure and unaffordable housing posed, was to uh, kind of what people saw as the family structure. And so you have the return of a very conventional understanding of sympathy, uh, family, intimacy, and relationships as a way to talk about the threat that this, uh, that crumbling infrastructure and unaffordable housing has, right? If a family can't afford a home in the city, what will happen to the relationships among them? And uh, in response to these, uh, to these historical conditions, you have the rise of the public housing uh, movement, which really embraced the, the kind of contracting conventional understanding of sympathy that in, in the book I talk about had been really cultivated by, uh, uh urban sociologists, um, uh, housing, not necessarily public housing advocates, but just people who are interested in the idea of housing. Um, you you have them really pushing the value of these kind of uh, intimate kinship type relationships. And so public housing advocates saw um, sympathy as a kind of handy term that they could use to advocate um, the public housing movement. They they saw uh, this idea of building um, adequate housing, and affordable housing for everybody, as a way to uh, return sympathy to both the family, to, to both families, and to uh, uh, people that are unrelated but but could interact with each other in more sympathetic kind of privatized um, spaces.
0: Now, then you go, you talk about uh, you, that was a Chicago sociologist that you're talking about there. Yeah, and then we go yeah. we go to Clarence Perry who. Uh, developed an idea of the neighborhood unit, mm-hmm. which had, I thought this was very interesting, because it really had an effect on how we think about neighborhood, how neighborhoods were thought of Yeah, I and mean, how
1: we continue to think about it, yeah, right. exactly. Right,
0: okay, and they're very homogeneous. His idea was very homogeneous, uh-huh. right?
1: Right, yeah, and again, you have all of these people. So Clarence Perry, uh, who's a, a really important figure in uh, neighborhood planning, uh, the Chicago sociologist, all of these people are citing, uh, Adam Smith, who is the original, uh, so to speak, formulator of, uh, sympathy as, you know, the, uh, the feel, fellow feeling that arises as you imagine yourself in the place of, of another individual. And cities for Olmstead and Perry, you know, for, for this kind of long line, I think there's cities where a threat to that because if you have to imagine yourself in the place of, You know, someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, someone who doesn't share the same culture as you, someone who is uh, economically radically, uh, you know, in a a radically different class from you. How do you imagine yourself in their place um, so that you can generate those fellow feelings? And so someone like Clarence Perry comes along and says, well, we can arrive at sympathy a lot more easily and readily if we just have people that belong to the same class and culture, culture, culture and next to each other. And, and so, yeah, his, his neighborhood new neighbor is really predicated on, on this idea that sympathy is much easier to achieve among a homogenous uh, group of people.
0: Right. So they figured if you get everybody sort of alike in their neighborhood, then they all can kind of interact with each other and... And they, yeah. and they're it's easier to it, and it's true it's easier to identify and have sympathy for somebody that looks like you and is like you than someone who's completely different. Yeah,
1: but it's not just and again I think here's where the contraction of sympathy comes in. It's not just easier to uh, have sympathy in a kind of identify with way, but it's much easier to imagine that you know someone who's much like you is a brother or sister, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's where the you know the, the kind of familial intimacy. Really returns to the discourse of sympathy, and, as I argue in the book you know essentially this this really marks the um, uh, kind of exhaustion of sympathy as a possibility for making sense of just the wide range of uh, affiliations that urbanites enter into in 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 the city right that, that that i I see this public housing movement and the the kind of adoption of sympathy as their um, uh, kind of core value, as well. You know, sympathy really can't go anywhere from here. That 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 that, that calls for the need for a, a really different discourse.
0: Okay, so you've talked about uh, the sociologists. You talked about the architects. You talk about uh, these people who were uh, urban uh, developers, or I guess. Uh, Yeah, they're housing advocates, public housing advocates, advocates, and then you go into talking about literary um, urbanists—people who are writing about the Mm -hmm. city—and what kinds of, how do they how do they they represent the relationships within the city? Can you give me examples? Can you talk a little bit about those writers, the literature, and how they were capturing things that maybe other people didn't notice, but they were writers and Mm -hmm. they were observing and they're writing about it. This is before the New Yorker. This is just. uh, some of the literary stuff.
1: Yeah, so so I think that what I what I argue in the book is that at the same time as you have these public housing advocates uh, uh, arguing for the the kind of primacy or the the, 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 the you know they're privileging intimacy and uh, uh, intimate type of sympathy as the as the uh, social standard the social gold standard, you have other writers like people. Uh, who started up at the New Yorker, people like E.B. White, people like Joseph Mitchell and A.J. Liebling, they're trying to capture a very different set of relationships in the city. And, and the New Yorker really was interested in um, capturing uh, from its er- from its early stages the kind of public life of the city. And and so you have people at the New Yorker really trying to develop ways of talking about that public life ways of talking about what happens uh on the streets of a city what happens in commercial spaces what what happens uh, and increasingly what happens uh, there that's a value as these places start to uh be torn down and um, redeveloped uh and so the new yorker writers are are cultivating uh this discourse of sociability they're 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 not interested in the kinds of intimate relationships that um people might experience among close friends in the city or within families. They're interested in really capturing the the affections that occur within a, a kind of larger neighborhood or within um you know these spontaneous um uh public interactions. You know, I, I, I mark them as the the kind of beginning of the of the emergence of this discourse of sociability.
0: Now they're doing urban profiles, or going and like doing yeah. a profile of a street, or a, a, a small neighborhood, or a, a, a gathering place, or particular characters in the city. Uh-huh. Maybe I don't know, maybe the grocer or somebody like that, and, right. and and how he's talking to the customers, and who the people are that come in and the out, and so they're doing almost like a sociological study on a very yeah. micro basis, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And, and yeah, so they're they're interested they're interested in the social possibilities that that the commercial infrastructure of a city makes possible. That they're interested in exactly as you're describing. You now, what what happens? Uh, you know, we have all these uh, you know this wide variety of, of kind of professions or ways of making a living in the city that bring people into contact with each other. Uh, but again, if we go back to the 19th century. Uh, kind of culture of really trying to separate you know the public sphere from the private sphere so that you keep um, kind of certain domestic values and, and social values protected in the in the in the domestic sphere. here we have uh, people uh, the New Yorker writers really trying to figure out well what happens what how do we explain the the emotional um, ties that inevitably arise between um, customers and proprietors, and uh, you know, as someone's out and about in the city making a living, they inevitably bump into and encounter people that are not going to be close friends, or that they're not going to view as brothers or sisters. And yet, there's there's something that you know that the New York was trying to, um, New Yorker writers were trying to, nevertheless assign value to those relationships right. and trying to come up with language. So it wasn't, it was they weren't dealing in these kind of Uh, grandiose kind of emotional terms or affections like intimacy, love, uh, but they're instead dealing in cooperation or, um, you know, much much less uh, kind of grand uh, affections.
0: But there is actually, you know, in the city, they observed that there were actually rules. There are rules for public engagement, you know, Uh manners, you know, whether you look somebody in the eye or you don't, uh, Mm
1: -hmm. you
0: know, how do you you know whether you touch people you don't touch people there's some i mean i've no you know if you go to some place like new york where it's really really crowded there are rules about how you right. navigate the the crowd and how you talk to people in the street if you need to talk to somebody on the street so mm-hmm. so that's undergirded the rules are undergirded by certain kinds of human values i would think
1: yeah yeah, and I think that again, those rules that you're describing, I mean, many would many would interpret that as um, evidence of the kind of social coldness of the city or the 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 uh yeah, the heartlessness of urban dwellers. And again, I think people like the New York the New Yorker writers, early New Yorker writers were were saying, no, it's not necess- it's not necessarily social coldness. There's a real affection here. That binds um, these urbanites to one another. It's just not sympathy. It's just not intimacy. It's something else. Right. And and uh, again, that became uh, that something else is the thing that they tried to put in words, and that uh, people like uh, Betty Smith, who wrote uh, "Tree Grows in Brooklyn," tried to put into words. You know, these you have these writers trying to do what I was trying to do when I moved to the city. How do how, I don't have a language for, my culture hasn't given me a language for making sense of and kind of assigning value to these relationships that clearly aren't intimate, clearly aren't sympathetic in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, So what are they?
0: Yeah, they Uh, may not be your friends, but they're not strangers either. Right. Especially if you see them, you know, on a regular basis on the street. They're not your friends, they're not your family, but there's something to you.
1: Right, yeah. And again, I think increasingly as... as, um, the, the urban renewal order um, emerged, the threat of urban renewal, of this kind of widespread um, and, and, and heavily funded from uh, federal government uh, kind of destruction of the city or certain parts of the city, you know, entire neighborhoods, sometimes to create um, uh, civic centers or highways, you know, that threat uh, to uh these uh spaces commercial spaces sidewalks other public spaces where uh where those relationships were rooted became kind of put increasing pressure upon people like the New Yorker writers or or um, tenement dwellers to try to to try to um, develop a more robust discourse for explaining the value of these relationships which, which traditionally hadn't had any any value assigned to them
0: it's almost like they're, they're trying to account for the millions of micro-relationships that are yeah. happening every day. They're little exactly. micro-seconds of interaction that build yeah. up to make a neighborhood or to make a city.
1: Right, exactly. And how do you defend that? You know, it's easy to defend a family, you know, this will destroy families um, if you if you do this. But, yeah, how do you defend uh, all those millions, as you're describing, you know, micro relationships and so yeah that's you know in a sense that's the pressure that's the kind of historical pressure under which uh, the discourse of urban sociability emerged
0: well there was a there was something that was surprising to me that was new to me was you know i've heard of the 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 term urban ecology Uh huh. and um but i never thought about where it came from i never thought that it came from you know ecologist of nature, the ecology yeah. of nature. And then so you have this uh, chapter where you talk about Rachel Carson and how the scientific language of ecology in the natural world got translate, gets translated into a community ecology, a mm-hmm. human community. And Rachel Carson was published in the New Yorker, and people were kind of wondering why she was published in the New Yorker, because she was talking about ecology right. of nature, Right. Right and and the New Yorker had a reputation for writing about urban right. relationships, so yeah. this jump here uh, is fascinating. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I see I see Rachel's cart. I see Rachel Carson's placement in the New Yorker in the 1950s as evidence of the overlap or the resonance between the kind of work that early New Yorker writers were trying to do, like Joseph Mitchell and A.J. Liebling. E.B. and this emerging discourse of, of ecology. In a sense, uh, what I see happening there is that Rachel Carson's ecological sensibilities, uh, her ways of making sense of the interrelationships among uh, creatures, uh, organisms, within an ecological system or in, within an ecological habitat, really resonated with what the New Yorker writers have been trying to do in terms of explaining the uh, inner relationships among the thousands of people that might inhabit uh, a neighborhood or a city, and uh, and uh, but even more than that, not only did it resonate, I think ecology really took the discourse of sociability, urban sociability, to a level that it was trying to get to but couldn't quite get to. It gave it the language, uh, you know, the, the the gloss. It gave it a new glossary for trying to make sense of. Not just people, not just the, um, people that you might interact with kind of physically in a city, but the people to whom you're connected that you never see at all. Um, right. So, so it caught, uh, in an ecological habitat, a kind of, a, in the natural, uh, uh, world, um, you know, you have ecologists trying to, trying to argue that, well, this organism is connected to this organism. What happens to this organism here? Will directly affect an organism that um, you know that organism might never see or never you know they might never interact. But if you remove that organism, something catastrophic might happen. And you'll you'll offset or you'll you'll um, you'll 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 destabilize the ecological balance. So this idea of balance became uh, really important for mid-century ecologists and urbanists uh, found that to be really appealing, uh, uh, a really appealing way to to make sense of the interconnections that people had with one another in the city, even if they never physically interacted with each other. Right,
0: like you, you always think that you can turn the tap on in the city and the water's going to come out, and there's you know, thousands of people behind that tap who are making that happen. Or mm-hmm. the garbage man comes by and picks up your trash. You never see the guy or the right. woman, and, but right. your trash gets picked up.
1: Right, it's Somebody's exactly.
0: doing it, but you don't know who they are.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you don't know who they are, but that doesn't mean that you can't feel some kind of fellow feeling for them right you know there there's a way in which ecology allowed um urbanists interested in trying to make sense of these again all these thousands of of um interconnections among urbanites some social and, and effective, uh heft and, and and weight that it would be you know it'd be possible to to feel fellow feeling for the garbage man that you never see uh, because of uh, again, just ecology gave them that that ability to talk about it in those terms.
0: So it's really about interdependence, the uh-huh. the language of interdependence, like right. interdependence. in nature, like in nature,
1: yeah.
0: uh, and so it, and not only interdependence between human beings with each other, but also with the lived with the built environment. Mm-hmm. The built environment shapes right. also those relationships. So right. It's a, it's a whole ecological, the streets, everything. It's the whole, yep. uh yeah. And seeing those as as a a total urban ecological system. Yep. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think that again, we're we're dealing at this moment in time with really the the um, the full blown a full blown version of of urban renewal, where uh, you know in the post war years, you have uh, the federal government giving cities. Millions and millions of dollars to, um, to rebuild, uh, cities in the, sh- in, to, to retrofit them for the automobile, to retrofit them for a new type of economy. And uh, again, what you have is, uh, cities with that federal funding, funding really wiping out entire, uh, neighborhoods, you know, really destroying social, uh, uh, ecology as well as the, the kind of uh, ecology that you're describing, of the built environment, the humans, and, and people people uh, were saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, now before we go and do all this, let's just hold up and think about the, the implications of that destruction. And ecology happened to be a really handy tool for making that counter-argument to the logic of, of urban renewal.
0: Because urban renewal had the assumption that uh this, the relationships in cities, those those more casual uh, secondary relationships, really yeah. didn't matter. They matter exactly. That you yeah, know, exactly. okay, we'll just you can wipe it out and you can start over and some new ones will come along. And you know what matters is that the, pri- the pri- providing people with the good adequate private spaces.
1: Right. Exactly. Yep. Totally.
0: Okay. So then you have then you have Jane Jane, Jane Jacobs, who uh-huh. we know a lot we all we know a lot about her, yeah. but. Uh, she begins to say, okay, these casual secondary relationships are really important. Right. And it should affect how we build our cities and what we do with the ones we've already have. Right. Okay, can you talk about uh, what are her, some of the things that she wanted to encourage and some things that she was trying to discourage that she thought was going to contribute to better human relations?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um – um I see Jane Jacobs as someone who uh a lot of a lot of people see Jane Jacobs as the beginning point of this new way of thinking about cities someone who mm-hmm. argued that um you know uh, the street was valuable that, that having eyes on the street is what makes cities safe or that uh you know in terms of her more kind of planning uh propositions that you know, generally shorter blocks are better because it gives people more opportunities to uh, interact, more people opportunities to kind of dig, take different routes and, and again, see different different people. I see her actually as solidifying this uh, much longer tradition of urban uh, sociability and to some degree sympathy that I've kind of traced throughout this book. So Jane Jacobs was, uh, you know, very much uh, educated in, the kind of history of the Settlement House movement. You know, she, she volunteered for and, and sat on the board and did work for uh, Union Settlement House in New York City. She was a journalist in the 1930s for uh, magazines like Vogue. She she wrote uh, pieces for Vogue magazine, pieces that really could have just as easily been placed in the New Yorker. Um, you know, the way that she was describing the Flower District or the Diamond District or, you know, these different uh, interactions of of uh, people in these economic kind of districts as they dickered with each other, kind of bantered back and forth. You know, she was trying to make sense of, just like the New Yorker writers were, were the, the kind of social value of those interactions. Um, she was, uh, very much, uh, um, trained in the kind of discipline of, of ecology. She, she was very much interested in science and sites, uh, some of these mid-century, uh, ecologists and urban ecologists. So I see her as bringing this Longer tradition of, of trying to make sense of uh, th- this range of urban relationships, public urban relationships, and packaging it in such a way that it really, uh, it really had the sense of a, of a cultural um, uh, a discourse, a kind of cultural tradition. And she popularized that discourse. So she's saying, in many ways, the things that a lot of the, a lot of people before her had been saying already, but she's saying them in such a way that. It, you know people really grasp what she's talking about,
0: no it seems to me that uh this whole sociability thing is really and using the ecological system as sort of a way to describe it uh is really about encouraging diversity. It's almost saying the more diverse it is, the better it's going to be right yep. which we hear this all the time right right and i and that's great, but the thing is, why do we have such so much suburban? Uh, and you know, the spread, the spread that we've had in our the major cities where you've got these suburbs that are like all the houses all look alike and, and it looks like everybody in them is just alike and it's changing rapidly now. But, uh, there was another movement going on too, apparently, that was right. continuing to do things that were not really the best for creating sociable cities. Right. So, you know, that's, yeah. what do you call it? The, They call it the bedroom suburbs, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you have. Yeah. I mean, one might see um, the counterpart to um, urban renewal as uh, white flight. Um, You know, this this, uh, you know, the the government was not only funding the kind of um, destruction and rebuilding of cities, um, but they were simultaneously funding um, uh, suburbanization. They were they were paying for highways that led out to suburban spaces they were you know subsidizing the the loans uh that people got to build and buy buy these houses um and and so yeah i mean i think that jacobs is someone who comes in and sees all this happening and and uh, attempts to say essentially that we're missing out if if we don't um but we don't think about the uh, the validity of of these alternative types of relationships. I mean, one might see suburbanization is really driven by the same kind of social ideals that public housing was driven by, the attempt to privilege intimate relationships. Let's get these people out in single family homes, and and uh, you know, be stabilize their kind of domestic relationships, reestablish intimacy away from the city. And Jacobs comes in and says. I don't know if this is such a such a great idea. I actually really find great value in the kinds of public interactions that I that I get. And there are many moments in the the Death and Life of Great American City cities where she essentially says, "I don't want people, you know, I don't want my neighbors in my hair all the time. I don't want them to know my business. I want these kinds of um, public contacts or what she refers to as casual contacts. I find those extremely enjoyable. I find people watching." um, extremely satisfying and enjoyable. Um, if I didn't have that, my life would be, um, not quite as vibrant, not quite as meaningful and in, in, in some pretty significant ways. So she comes in and really champions, um, what those kinds of social public social relationships, uh, um, uh, uh, add to one's, one's life. And, you know, she's drawing upon the language of, of ecology when she talks about, um, Mutual, uh, dependence, uh, mutual interdependence. Uh, anyway, just her language throughout death and life, um, is just really interesting in the way that she, again, draws upon this previous tradition to, um, really validate and, and give, uh, assign value to, um, those kinds of public, um, public relationships that, that in the 18th century, for example, 18th and 19th century had been really, um, denigrated or, or not given any kind of value.
0: Okay, so I know this is beyond the scope of your book, but where is the urban sociability now? Where does it stand? What it, do you have any 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 sense of where we are? Are are we seeing these you know the people trying to do the reurban core, people moving back to the core? There's all this idea of building these little micro like you know city vill- uh, urban villages
1: that yeah.
0: multi use you know environments.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to know um, what was, a, you're certainly right. I mean, we, as a culture, we think much differently about the city. And I think as a culture, we we um, are much more quick to embrace the social possibilities of the city. No longer do we fear uh, urban relationships, urban interactions in the same way that I did when I was growing up in the 80s uh, in Central Valley, California. Um, so I, th- I think that, you know, on the one hand, um, we're much more, as a culture, we're much more open to sociability. Or we, we, we embrace the value of sociability um, over intimacy, or in addition to intimacy, much more readily. There are, of course, things I think that Jane Jacobs would, would uh, not love about kind of our current urban uh, trends. I mean, our urban spaces are are much less diverse than they used to be. Um, you know, I, I think that she would not. Uh, she would say that the gentrification of cities is um, is in, in many ways uh, harming the uh, the kind of ecological diversity and therefore the structure of feeling that one might have in the city. Um, so I, I think there's that, uh, but there's also I think we continue to um, in a, innovate the ways that we communicate with and interact with each other. I mean I think that many people would, would see things like social media or cell phone. Use as really uh, diminishing the, the kind of social vibrancy of, of urban public spaces. You know, if everyone's looking at their phone instead of looking at each other, it doesn't this diminish the, the kind of sociableness of the city? I think in some ways, you know, it's easy to, to make that argument, but I think that, that it's very possible and I, you know, believe that sociability can also occur over social, social media, right? That social media has ways of connecting and therefore generating forms of fellow feeling that are equally valid, right? That that they're, they're different than the forms of fellow feeling that say uh the urban ecologists and Jane Jacobs and the New Yorker writers are trying to kind of uh trace and and, and uh narrate. Um but I you know I see uh just simply alternative forms of, of sociability emerging as technologies change, as urban form changes, uh and so forth.
0: Okay. Uh, Jamin, thank you so much. You've been generous with your time. It's very interesting. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. You can contact me through my website, LillianBarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.